With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. So I was very concerned about, obviously, this this potential uh, very serious virus that is spreading out of the uh, Wuhan in China, the, the the what's called the coronavirus. And I called up a leading expert, Dr. Peter Openshaw, who uh, is a professor of immunology at Imperial College. He's been involved in these types of viruses for many, many years and uh, is an expert on them enough that he's regularly regularly called to comment on them for magazines, television, and so on. And uh, I wanted him to break down for me everything about this virus. You know, what is it? Speculation on how it started, how is it transmitted, how contagious is it, how fatal is it, uh, what we went through, some of the conspiracies involved on it. We did go over a potential worst case scenario, but uh, we, we were also talking, and, and particularly we, we talked kind of after the interview, that there was a very, very high chances for an optimistic scenario. And I'll explain what I mean here, and then we'll go into the interview. But Everybody's throwing out these ratios, ratios like, oh, 20,000 people infected, 400 people died. The problem is, and so then they say there's a 2% chance if you're infected that you could die, which is much higher, as Dr. Openshaw says, than the flu or other diseases. And we also know that it's very infectious. It's not as fatal, apparently, as earlier diseases like SARS that it's very related to, but it is potentially more infectious. The optimistic scenario, which is what happened with both SARS and with other potential pandemics you know, that occurred later, like in 2009, 2010, is that it could be the case that many, many, many thousands of times more people are infected than we realize. We only know the ones that are infected that go to hospitals. So it could be that we're basing that 2% fatality rate off of an an extremely small number of the actual people exposed and then infected with the disease. So, And that, in fact, is what has happened in prior fears of pandemics. Uh, A reporter would ask some high up health official, what's the worst case scenario? The health official would say, some high number, and that would be the headline in the newspaper. When in fact, in every prior situation, and and you know, very quite possibly in this situation, the ratio of people exposed to the actual number of people who die could be a very, very, very small percentage of what we actually think is the current percentage. So, just to just to briefly summarize some top points that you'll hear in a second. A lot of the conspiracy theories uh, are easily debunked, and uh, the optimistic scenario is much, much better than people think. And although, again, we, you know, we discuss the worst case scenario, I do want to stress that the optimistic 
case is is very very possible and is what actually has happened in prior instances that seemed even more scary than this instance we you know we talked briefly about the economic consequences but again um, that's all related to what we learn in the next few weeks about containment and what these real ratios are I think you'll hear what dr. Openshaw says and why and I think it's important to understand why but there's actually very little that we truly know, both in terms of prevention, containment, all of these different ratios, cures. And at the end, uh, Dr. Openshaw describes what he would do personally with himself and with his family if he was both exposed and or infected. In any case, check out the interview coming up right now. Thanks for listening to the James Altucher Show. And here we go. Very happy I have Dr. Peter Openshaw here to talk to me about coronavirus, or particularly this specific coronavirus emanating from the Wuhan in China. And uh, uh, Peter or Dr. Openshaw, why don't you tell me your background? And I've seen you all over TV, BBC, magazines talking about this, so I know you're an expert. Right. Well, so my background is um, I'm, a, I'm a physician, I'm a pulmonologist, um, but I'm a specialist in immune responses of the lung. So I've, um, I have a PhD in immunology and I've been on various advisory committees for about well, 15 years uh, to do with outbreaks and their control. So my real expertise is in the sort of immunology of the lung and uh, in respiratory disease. And so, uh, in terms, when you say immunology of the lung, that does include things like SARS, uh, this coronavirus, because ultimately it creates this sort of pneumonia in the lungs, and that's how people are dying from this disease. Yes, so it causes an sort of inflammation in the lungs. So the virus gets in, and it triggers the the um, your immune system to react, and it's a lot of the disease is actually. The reaction of your own immune system, which causes the sort of inflammation and pouring out of cells and fluid into into lung tissue. So it's well, actually. So let's start from the beginning. So again, what are is there any direct involvement you have with the EU's work, or I don't know, you, any any institutions work in terms of dealing with this disease? Because I have, you know, you you are going on the BBC. I have seen you in other articles uh, talking mm. about this. Like, what's your expertise in this specific yeah. disease? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm I'm not at all talking on behalf of the UK government or on the on behalf of any committees that I sit. Um, although I do, I am sitting on an advisory committee, and we are also putting together a, a proposal to study this virus. Um, and we've already recruited the UK cases to our study, but it's um, it's obviously early days in the UK. We haven't seen that many cases. They've all been imported, and we're really anticipating seeing many, many more cases over the next few weeks, I guess. So that's interesting that you're anticipating it. So uh, right now, what do you see as the relationship between this and kind of our first pandemic exposure to this class of diseases, which was the 2002 outbreak of SARS? And, And what's the relationship between this and SARS? Okay. I mean, this is quite like SARS, actually. It's, um, it seems to be a more infectious virus, but maybe a little bit less severe. So it shares with SARS that both of these coronaviruses are 
closely related to viruses that we've already known about in bats. And in the case of SARS, it probably came through an intermediate host, as we call it, of, of civet cats. So civet cats, you know, climb around in trees and um, are very, you know, e ecologically very close to bats and they may share some bat viruses. And then maybe it got into some civet cat colonies and from there it got into a uh, human host and started to transmit. You know, these viruses throw up variations of themselves all the time, trying to find um, new ecological niches, as you might say. They're very, they're very prone to mutate and to develop um, new territories in which they can survive and thrive. And that we saw in SARS. And fortunately, it wasn't really very infectious. It was quite infectious, but not as infectious as this one. This one really seems to spread well between people. How, how do you define infectious? Um, well, the most critical factor is how many cases you get per index case. And that's a number which the epidemiologists call R0. So um, you know, each person, if you infect two other people, that's got an R0 of two. And obviously any, any disease with an R0 above one, it's going to go on increasing exponentially because if you infect two people and each of those people infects two other people, then you've got you know, four. And so it keeps doubling. So um, the key factor is the R0 and what you can do, do to bring down the R0 below one. If you can do that, then you can get rid of the disease. And that's what happened with SARS. All the public health measures, the social distancing, as we call it, in other words, you know, trying to in increase the, um, the probability that you won't infect somebody else, um, the hand hygiene, the um, all those other measures that you can take manage to drive SARS down and away and get rid of the disease permanently so far um, from humanity. But with this disease, it seems to have an R0 which is considerably higher. And on average, people are infecting you know, two or three other people. And this, that's over, despite... Over, over what yeah. time period? Well, um, so we don't yet know whether um, how infectious it is at different phases of the disease. Um, I think this disease shares with SARS that it has quite a prolonged time course. So from the time you're first exposed to the time you first develop symptoms, typically it might be about five days. Okay, So then you might develop mild symptoms and be symptomatic for up to a week. And probably during that time, it seems people are quite infectious. And then after you've had it, so we're now talking what we're getting on for sort of 10, 10 to 14 days from the initial exposure, then you may start to get really quite symptomatic. I'm short of breath um, and develop um, a cough, maybe need hospital admission. And then there may be another quite prolonged period of perhaps a week when it's still not clear which way it's turning. So, you know, you're ending up with a disease which is taking up to three weeks to really declare its full intensity. And so that's it's roughly, it's yeah, it's a quite slow. Even during yeah, this period where there's no symptoms. It looks suspiciously like that is the case. Yeah, so people who have pretty mild symptoms, maybe feel a bit achy, not feeling quite themselves, feeling a bit tired, you know, that's during that period, 
it, there's some evidence that they may be in, infectious. We don't know whether you can be completely well and feel fine and yet be infectious. That isn't proven. But it looks like you can have pretty mild symptoms in those early stages and yet be quite infectious. What you just described uh, as the mild symptoms, I call Tuesday, but, you know, sure. that aside. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Does, uh, if, if you touch, is I heard that it's also infectious um, from people to surface back to people. So if someone touches it, if someone's infected, they touch a doorknob, someone else touches the doorknob, they can get it. That's probably right, particularly if you say sneeze into your hand and then touch the doorknob and, you know, maybe shake hands or touch somebody's face. You know, we all touch our face all the time, whether we like it or not. And so if you contaminate your hands, then it looks like we can probably transmit it that way. I mean, how long still, can it live? How, how, yeah. sorry, how, how long can it live outside the host? Uh, depends on the conditions, the amount of ultraviolet light, the temperature, and so on. But these the, the, these viruses are reasonably stable on surfaces, certainly for some some hours. Um, you know, it's it's not not clear exactly what we need to do to really sterilize those surfaces either. But we think that hand washing is very important. You know, we know that with influenza, people who wash their hands properly and that's not just running them quickly under the tap and using the tea towel to dry them this is really washing your hands front and back with soap and then rinsing off and then drying your hands with with paper towel and disposing of it if you do that five times a day you're much less likely to get influenza and we're sort of extrapolating from those sort of studies to think that maybe that's important with this this disease as well but i hear that uh, I hear that yeah. san- hand sanitizers like Purell don't work as well. Yeah. Again, we're speculating. Yeah. We'd, we still don't really know. Um, I mean, in, in the UK, we have some real experts on face masks. Um, and our experts are telling us that the evidence that face masks are effective is really lacking. Um, we're not advising everyone to wear face masks. Whereas in China, they're very determined that everyone wears face masks um, to the point that it's actually being enforced by the police. But, you know, we're in uncharted territory. We really don't know exactly how this is being transmitted, but it certainly seems to transmit quite well. Uh, And you mentioned that fatality is not as uh, big as SARS was, the fatality ratio. But I've been reading a little bit of the math that's in question a little. So what's... What's yeah. your uh, summary of, the, of that? And then I'm, I might have a question. I mean, the sort of numbers that we're assuming at the moment is that the fatality may be 2%. Now, that sounds a bit low. We are purely, purely guessing at this stage. But if it were to uh, infect a large proportion of the world's population and yet kill 2%, that's a very large number of people. So, so the, the question I have is, Yeah, like like if it's two percent. So if hypothetically twenty thousand people get infected, four hundred of those twenty thousand are expected to die. Expected Mm. to die. But wouldn't it be more accurate to wait to see how many of the twenty thousand have recovered versus died, and then you really know the fatality. So so some of these twenty thousand, they're on their way to death, but they haven't died yet. So so absolutely. You clearly have a mathematical mind, James. Not, that not is, good enough that, to record Skype accurately, but that, that's fine. But that, 
But that is that is the real problem, is that at the moment, the reports are coming out very fast and they're coming out before it's clear whether a lot of the people being described in the studies um, have yet determined an outcome. In other words, a lot of them have na- neither been released from hospital nor have they died. So there's a lot of people in the middle who are still uh, sick and in hospital and some of them very severely ill and those are not being counted as deaths because um, the situation hasn't fully played out to the end. I, and, so, and another question on the numbers and you know this is more speculative really so I don't want to get too much into speculation territory but apparently in many Chinese cities now the hospitals are being so overwhelmed the the rumor is that they're turning away people they feel who are infected and maybe a little too far along because they don't want to make the data worse than it is just for public perception purposes. I could imagine that could possibly be the case, but that would be purely speculation on my part. Yes. You could also say that, you know, if somebody is um, is so severely ill that there really is no hope that they're going to be treatable, then there wouldn't be any advantage in taking them into hospital. I mean, it could be that they're so limited in resources because they have become overwhelmed by severe cases and their intensive care wards are completely full. What do you do? You know, you you don't necessarily have the option to admit somebody if you have run out of facilities. It's great to hear a non-conspiracy viewpoint on on that. Uh, so, because I didn't think of that, that that's that's good. Um, uh, in terms of the, you, you know, you mentioned the R naught is two point five, which means every infected person on average infects, you know, let's say between two and three people. And and it's over a certain period, like a month or two. Uh, yeah. That's that's fairly quickly. We're talking like you know a year and a half to two years. We're potentially just on that math. The entire world is at least exposed to the virus. Is, does that sound like a reasonable statement? Like, could it be? Unless you're like in a cave somewhere, could it be? The, could it be the case that if that number stays the same without any cures, the entire world could be at least exposed to it? Not not get it, but exposed to it. That is one possible scenario. I mean, it could be that we're seeing the introduction of a of a new coronavirus. You know, we know that there are currently seven human coronaviruses, and the common cold coronaviruses that we that we know about are relatively normal, mild common cold viruses. They've probably been circulating in the human population for many decades, maybe centuries, maybe millennia. We don't know, but those are coronaviruses, they've become relatively benign in their adaptation, and they very rarely cause severe disease. So it may be that over time, this coronavirus will become um, attenuated, or the human population will um, will adapt in response to pressure from a coronavirus in such so, a way that the disease is more mild over time. So, so you make a good point, though, that I think most people don't realize, which is that many examples or many occurrences of the common cold are also a coronavirus. It's just that uh, they ended up mutating. And so things like SARS and MERS, and now this particular Wuhan coronavirus is much more deadly than the common cold coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's not that uncommon that when a virus jumps species, comes from a different species into a new population, that it may 
um, may cause relatively severe disease in the early stages and then may may possibly adapt over time. So that's a perfectly um, conventional um, understanding of what viruses do when they jump from one species to another. So, and, yeah. and so there's also theories with this one that um, giving giving all the laboratories and the scientists in China the benefit of the doubt, there's some theories that uh, bats, they noticed bats were relatively immune to SARS and the later MERS coronavirus. And so they were trying to, you know, amp it up in a man-made fashion to see where the bat's immunity broke down and that could help them build a vaccine to the more milder coronaviruses. And the theory is uh, under lax conditions, the lab accidentally released this into an animal who then affected, infected a human. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there's any evidence for that at all. I mean, the virus, we know the virus sequence has been confirmed not only in China, but elsewhere. We know we know the genetic sequence of this virus, and we know that it's extremely close to known a known bat, um, horseshoe bat virus that has been characterized for some years now. There aren't any odd sequences in there that you might possibly insert if you were trying to change its ability to spread. You know, it's not been modified or genetically engineered. We, know, we would see that. We would see that in the genetic sequence of the virus. So that, that hasn't been that hasn't been seen at all because I, I thought I've read in a couple places that there that insertions were seen, but maybe that was just one of the you know, this is what I'm trying to right. understand. What's how mm. to separate fact from fiction here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was there was a report which came out and for a few days it was out there on in the in the public domain, and then various experts, viral experts came in, re-examined those sequences and said, No, no. They just have made a mistake. They don't understand the likelihood that you would get that sort of sequence by chance alone. Actually, this is this is absolutely not a deliberate insert. This is just some random variation. So you know, there's been a lot about that in the scientific um, correspondence, um, and that's been totally debunked. It's it's interesting how when you know something scary like this, the imagination kind of takes over. 80% of our knowledge. So I've seen so many conspiracy theories at every level. And then the, yeah. I, I yeah. saw a paper about HIV insertions and all of this. That's stuff. right. Yeah. So that's you why that. I wanted to kind of get the, the real, you know, what's the real scenario. Right. So right. Um, how far do you think right now it's truly spread? Well, it's it's spread to many countries. I mean, most of the cases being seen in those other countries have direct links through to China, but it certainly is succeeding in spreading um, and causing some secondary cases in those localities. It's exactly what we'd expect to see with a highly infectious virus, that it is able to spread and establish itself in other locations, I would be very surprised if we managed to control it um, because it's so infectious and because we really don't understand um, how human-to-human transmission occurs. And we're pretty sure that there are a lot of cases out there that never, you know, come to medical attention and not diagnosed. We're right, because we're, they, they could have no symptoms and then get over it. Yeah, or just a mild cough and you just don't think about it. Yeah. And then, but we during that time, yeah. they could infect a bunch of people and they yeah. won't know where they got it. Yeah. And there may be 
a lot of people who just have mild disease. And we haven't yet got to the stage when we know how common that is. The flu. Sorry, I, it just froze for a moment. Do you want the, can oh. you ask that again? Yeah. Yes. What, what's the fatality rate on the flu? So with, with ordinary influenza, it's, you know, it's below one in one in a thousand. I mean, it's um, so the WHO estimates that every year between a quarter and a half a million people die worldwide of the ordinary seasonal flu. But um, that's to some extent that is people who might be going to die anyway within the next year or two and um, maybe frail and elderly and so forth. Um, and, and, well, just like just like yeah. that in, with with this with this. What do you call it? Like in terms of English, I know there's the scientific NC, whatever. Would you call it the Wuhan coronavirus, or what do you call no, it? No, no. So we we're very specifically trying to avoid um, labeling a place, okay. uh, place name. So it's now <clears throat> there are two forms of naming. One is the 2019 novel coronavirus, 2019 hyphen little n capital C little o capital V. Okay, so that's that's the sort of official name, or you can swap the 2019, put it at the end. That's a different version. Um, but mostly the, the one with the date first is, is winning out at the moment. It may okay. be another name that's going to come along, but at the moment, um, that's the name, which is it's an official name. So I think trying to label it according to the place of origin is, is often a mistake. Okay, so I guess for the purpose of this, I'll just call it the coronavirus. We can call it the novel coronavirus, yes. Right. So so are there people more susceptible to getting it, less susceptible? Are there people more susceptible to uh, dying from it, less susceptible? Okay, yeah. So generally, if you're under 15, you're unlikely to get bad disease. There have been some cases described in children. But, um, but it seems like it's pretty mild in general in those under the age of 15. Between 15 and 25 might be increasing in severity a bit. Over 25, that's the sort of age group that are starting to be admitted to hospital. And it's really the peak, of, peak age of those admitted to hospital is around um, late 40s. So, yeah. So and- maybe, maybe, maybe 50s, you know. So, and... For people who are over 65, then the rate of severe disease is, is increased. Um, the sort of risk factors are things like diabetes and heart, existing heart disease, um, but not particularly prominent in this, in this particular case, people with pre-existing lung disease like asthma, chronic bronchitis. You would think that those would be the people most susceptible, but actually it seems to be people with pre-existing heart problems, diabetes. And and what about, I've read somewhere that um, there, there, you know, there's a difference between the number of Asians getting it percentage-wise versus non-Asians. Is this true mm. or mm. Mm. we don't know? I mean, that you know, in the in the cluster that we've just seen in some chalet guests in a ski chalet in France, there was somebody who who'd been at the conference for a couple of days in Singapore, came back, joined the ski party, was with them for a few days, and almost everyone in the chalet got infected. Now, we don't know the ethnicity of that group, but we're sort of assuming that, that, that they were European. Um, you know, there are some mutations in the genome that make people more susceptible. We actually identified one 
in two, which we published in Nature in 2010. Um, this came out of some studies which were done on influenza. Um, a mosaic study, which I led on nationally, was a study of influenza, and we contributed patients to identifying that um, mutation called IFIT-M3. And there's a mutation within the gene which controls your response to interferon, which is present in only one in 400 Caucasians, but in something like 25% of Southeast Asian populations. And in the hospitalized case series of people with severe pandemic H1N1 influenza, it was about 70% of the cases in hospital had that mutation. So it's a very long explanation, but essentially it, it is possible that there is some particular susceptibility amongst populations in Southeast Asia that make them more vulnerable to these viral diseases. We don't know whether that applies to this new viral disease. It's too early to say. It's a very important question, but we don't know. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I feel like this was sort of the basics. And the one of the important points is that you don't, you mentioned you don't feel it can be contained. And that combined with the fact that probably at some point fairly soon, the entire world will be exposed to it. It sort of begs the question, well, how can we, are, are we making any headway at starting to figure out how to contain it? What's, you know, I guess there's a worst case scenario we could talk about later, but just what attempts so far are there to continue other than the basics of everybody's washing their hands, there's quarantine in all the major cities that are most exposed to it. Uh, yeah. Does that have a chance? If not, what's the next level? Are we yeah. working on anything? Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 a great shame that it wasn't recognized just a week or two earlier in Wuhan, and they weren't able to, you know, enforce containment at that time. I think really early on, it could have been that all these containment efforts would have been successful. But by the time we've got thousands of cases, and it's spread to so many Chinese cities, and it's managed to get outside China, only a few seed cases, but enough to make us think that there are many other cases perhaps that we're missing. You know, it just seems sensible that we have to plan for the scenario that this one can't be contained completely and will eventually circulate and become one of those conditions that we consider when we see somebody turning up at a hospital with a pneumonia. We'll start to think, well, could it be this? novel coronavirus. And so given that, that um, containment is not as important to focus on as much as, uh, let's call it cure or, you know, what to yeah. do with them once they're in the hospital. So so for SARS, things like you mentioned earlier, interferon were, were somewhat okay. useful. Mm -hmm. Sorry. If I could just take one step back and say, I don't think it's, it's, um, I, I think it's too early to give up on containment for now. I think it's very important that we do continue to try to contain this virus as best we can. The best hope we have is that we manage to contain it. But I think we have to plan for the eventuality that this one actually might not be containable because it just seems to spread so well. It spreads much better than SARS. Right. Spreads well. We're not really sure about the fatality rate, but... Even with the numbers you were talking about, it's it's would be the the biggest event in the since the Spanish flu in 1919. 
so again, in terms of treating it, you know, China, uh, I guess scientists have suggested that uh, a drug, Alluvia, which is a combination mm -hmm. of a couple of HIV drugs, that might be useful. Yeah. Previously, yeah. drugs like interferon were used on on SARS, but maybe it might not be as useful here. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, they've very rapidly instituted some some trials, and thank goodness they've done that. I think it's incredible just how fast the Chinese have moved in terms of putting in place, you know, first of all, all the correct quarantine in a way that I think it, many, many uh, nations would find really hard. Um, and second, really just getting on and starting these trials of these drugs that might possibly um, be beneficial. And the WHO has done a really good scoping exercise and run through all the possible um, drugs that would be worth trying and has come up with a priority list. And the Chinese are starting with the high priority ones, the ones which look as if they have the best chance of, um, of having an effect and they're working their way down the list. And I just hope that they find something effective. And and how does that work in places like the UK or the USA, where like in the US, there's a, you know, the FDA where drugs could take up to 10, 15 years and billions of dollars to get approved. Is there a way to yeah. fast track? So within weeks or a few months? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we rehearse all of this during the 2009-2010 um, flu pandemic. And it became evident that a thing which was really slowing everything down was was all the, um, the the paperwork and the and the and the due diligence that you had to go to before you could actually launch um, launch a trial, and everything has been really speeded up. And I think that this time we are going to be able to launch trials. You know, trials have already been launched for the highest priority drugs, and I think we will get the results within a matter of months, which is incredible compared to the normal sort of timeline where it may take 10, 20 or 30 years from a, the first idea of what drug to use to it actually being a drug on the market. And what I guess I guess I was going to ask, like, why is there a panic about this drug versus something like the flu, which kills many, you know, kills many tens or hundreds of thousands of people a year. But I guess it's the fact that the fatality rate is so much higher than the flu as as a species, you know, we have flu vaccines now. We know how to deal with the flu. We've encountered it. We, uh, it you know, yeah. th this one, we still, do, again, don't really understand the fatality rate, how fast, uh, what really the R number is. So there's so many unknowns that it makes it scarier. Yes, that's exactly right. That That is what makes it particularly uncertain ground. Uh, you know, we do sort of know a lot about influenza, different types of influenza. There are many, many different types, some with a higher fatality rate, particularly the avian ones that can jump straight from birds into, into man. Um, but they are generally not very transmissible. So there's a sort of reciprocal um, <clears throat> value between the transmissibility between humans and the, uh, the fatality rate amongst influenza, fortunately. You know, so far we haven't really encountered one which is very transmissible between people and which also has a high fatality rate. But here, you know, we are in relatively uncharted territory. We don't have the equivalent of Tamiflu or Sultamavir, and um, we don't know what vaccines would, would do. We don't have vaccines against coronavirus diseases. Um, I mean, in, in the veterinary field, there are also coronaviral diseases, and there is 
know, that it's been quite difficult to make vaccines which are safe and effective. What, why is that? Uh, I just, I don't know why. Yeah, well, I wish we knew why. I mean, uh, sometimes if you, if you administer a vaccine and it generates a nice antibody response, that's a very predictive correlate of protection. You know that if that antibody is in the bloodstream, then the person's going to be protected. And that's more or less the case with influenza. You know, we can test out influenza vaccines, see if they generate a good antibody response. If they do, then there's a good chance that's going to work. So, you know, you can roll it out without doing extensive additional human testing with, say, infection challenge or anything like that. But in so this case, we can't do infection challenge. We can't do deliberate infection challenge. We have to um, we have to really start developing those vaccines pretty well from scratch. Well, is there any evidence that when somebody is infected, that anti antibodies in the body are activated and start attacking it? Yeah, well, that's a, another big question is, you know, if somebody's been infected once with this virus, can they be reinfected with the same virus or are they resistant to it? You might expect that they would be resistant, but we don't as yet have that information. We know that with some viruses, like there's a virus I've been working on since 1985 called respiratory syncytial virus that causes bronchiolitis in babies. It's a, a wheezy baby common cold virus. And we know that with that virus, you can actually reinfect people repeatedly with the exact strain, same virus, and they get cold you know, multiple times throughout their lives without the virus needing to mutate. In other words, the virus has found some way of getting around the immune response that it does induce, and it, uh, and it just infects regardless. And we don't know whether this novel coronavirus is one of those viruses that can reinfect or whether once it's gone around the world uh, a few times, it will have infected so many people and generated so much antibody that there will be what we call herd immunity amongst the human population and then everyone will be immune and the virus will die out because it can't find any new uh, new candidates for infection. Is the reason so, that, that doesn't happen to the flu is because uh, the flu mutates slightly every year, so it's a new flu? Exactly. It's, the, it's, a, it's a wonderful virus in terms of its ability to mutate and evade the immune system. It's, um, it can tolerate a lot of mutation in its surface um, in one of the surface proteins, that one of the key proteins, it would mutate a lot and accommodate those mutations without losing its function. Um, so it's it really survives by, you know, being, being very fleet of foot genetically. And, and, and so, okay, so right now we have no vaccine. We're not really sure about the containment efforts. So now, and and well, no, I think the containment efforts are good as far as they go, and we have to continue them. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, but we don't know. We don't know how much time they're buying. Right. And then and then moving over into cure where we're probably we may or may not have one or two, but there's that remains to be seen. This uh, they're in trials. What about um, kind of basic immune system cure? So, for instance, we know that the the lethal part of this uh, coronavirus is uh, it creates this inflammation in the lungs. So if you take kind of basic medicines or supplements or whatever to control inflammation just in general in the body or in the immune system, will that help? What, 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 what works better than mm. others? Mm. Mm. Well, we're pretty sure that taking steroids doesn't help. You know, 
generally, if there's some inflammation and we give steroids, then you know, sometimes that's a good thing. We don't think it does. It looks like the use of steroids in SARS was associated with prolonged viral shedding. Um, so it actually you know, dampened the immune system and the virus hung around for longer and actually seemed to cause more damage. So at the moment, we're saying that steroids ought to be avoided unless they're specifically needed. Um, you know, there are lots of specific drugs that inhibit different bits of the immune system. So many have come onto the market in recent times for treatment of, say, Crohn's disease, you know, inflammatory bowel disease and arthritis and so on. We don't know if any of those might possibly be beneficial. And those would have to be put to proper clinical trial because it could be that they too would be harmful. So we're left with things like uh, acetaminophen or what we call paracetamol. I don't know why we call it something different over here, but but taking taking that will maybe bring down your fever, make you feel a bit less achy, make you feel better for a few hours, but then you need to take those about every four hours and you know, not not more than eight a day because it can poison your liver. And uh, and those those medications, we don't know whether that might actually slightly prolong viral shedding. There is some evidence that in some common colds, if you take a lot of acetaminophen, it actually can mean that you shed virus for longer and it takes longer to actually get rid of it. And so this is a naive question, but similar to that, what about something like ibuprofen? Right. Again, that that may that may make you feel a bit better whilst you know for a few hours after you take it, it may bring your fever down. Yeah. And, so and that hmm. even even a more naive question: What about like uh, just a mega vitamin D three dose? You know, which or vitamin C or something? Yeah. I mean, so I mean, so vitamin D sort of works for people who are vitamin D deficient. Um, if you're getting enough sunlight and you've got a good diet, you know, you probably don't need it. But, you know, vitamin D supplements are pretty popular and there's some evidence that they may possibly be, be slightly advantageous. There was an awful lot of, um, of enthusiasm for vitamin C, but really not too much evidence that that does anything to strengthen your immune system, whether it's against infection or against cancer. You know, it's most of it you just pass out in the urine. So I want to I want to kind of summarize a little bit of of what's happening here. So this is this current 2019 coronavirus is some mutated version of let's say SARS or MERS that's uh, again uh, again potentially more infectious, potentially more fatal. We don't fully know or understand yet, but it does seem to be um, at least very new and probably much more dangerous than the other two. So that's the that's the first thing we kind of know. Well, more dangerous because it's more infectious. So um, so SARS and MERS have a higher fatality rate. They are so far much, that we know. Yeah, that, well, no, we we know much more about them because they they've been. I mean, you know, SARS was around two thousand and two, two thousand and three. You know, we knew exactly what it did now because we can look back retrospectively and we know exactly. You know, how many cases there were really and how many people died and so on. So, so you know, that had a fatality rate, case fatality rate of about 10%. Um, in this one, the fatality looks like it's lower, but it's more infectious. So if you, you know, the, the total number of people who ultimately succumb is a product of 
how many people and how fatal it is. And, and this and, one looks like it's getting more people, but the fatality rate is lower. And we don't know where it started. I mean, we don't know. We know the kind of region of the world and perhaps the city, but we don't. There's all these scenarios uh, that there were these insertions, but you, we, you kind of, or scientists have uh, done away with that theory. We don't really know if it came out of this one laboratory in Wuhan or not. I don't uh, think we. I think it didn't come out of the laboratory. I. I Pretty confident of that. Well, why, I mean, why are you confident is, in that? Because it is just like this bat virus that we know about, and okay. somehow it, you know, jumped out of a bat, maybe through some intermediate host like a civet cat. We don't know that yet, um, but that is absolutely the scenario that seemed to seem to have caused the SARS outbreak. And you know, there's no reason to think there's anything. Other than that, that's occurred in this in this particular instance. Well, one thing that I read was that they seem to be—I don't know how they do this—but they uh, across all the cases, it seems to have come from one instance of animal to human. Although we don't know what animal, what human, it all seems to have a common descendant. Not not right. earlier than December. Yeah, that's right. So you, we know how fast these viruses tend to mutate on average. They they're pretty. Um, consistent. It's it's like a sort of the the RNA, the genetic material of which they're made, does mutate at a, at a known rate, and so you can sort of almost look look back through the clock, having assembled a number of different versions of this virus, and you can say, well, how long would it have taken for them to have got from a single start point, and that leads us back to something pretty recent in terms of origin. At the right at the end of end of 2019, so you know it came from a point source sometime at the end of 2019 is what is what the sort of genetic analysis is telling us. And and in terms of uh, preventative measures, you know we think containment is our is a good hope, or and it's we and it's important to to do, and and that's all the same basics as. Preventing the flu. Just wash your hands a lot. Don't be exposed to people. Uh, stay indoors. I don't know. And maybe maybe yeah. vitamin C. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. And don't. And if if you may if you may have it, don't go and pitch up and spend several hours sitting in a crowded doctor's surgery or hospital waiting room, infecting lots of other people. You know, contact the medical medical people by telephone and tell them what's happened, and uh, try not to infect other people. You know, but, how, but how would you know if all you have for the first couple of weeks is just a cough? I feel funny. If I just had a cough, I would feel funny calling the hospital. Yeah. I think I yeah. have coronavirus. Yeah, I know. It's, it's really so difficult at the moment because, as you say, it's a very frequent set of mild symptoms that may, may signify that you've been infected. And that's one of the reasons that it's so hard to stop the spread of this type of, um, type of virus. You know, if you come out in very distinctive spots, you know, if you smallpox, you know, you can spot that somebody has all these infectious lesions all over their skin. And it's relatively easy to say, yep, you are infectious, you know, keep away. But with this sort of thing, it's very, very hard to prevent uh, further spread. Right. And since there's no vaccine, that moves us over much more importantly in terms of containment or wiping this out. But before it gets to be at disaster levels, 
is either developing one of these medicines or could there be a chance that even before they finish trials, they're just distributed to worst case situations in hospitals so that people could have a chance? Yeah. So they think the if the antiviral medications are proven to work in a proper controlled clinical trial, then we'll know what what it is that we need to we need to use for those cases. And I think the one of the great things about an antiviral drug is that we've a we've got a disease which takes some time to play out, a matter of weeks, and so there's more of an interval for an antiviral drug to work. Whereas in influenza, it's a pretty short, sharp disease. Most people are, are over it in you know, three or four days, and there's a very narrow window of effectiveness. Whereas with a longer time, time course of disease, there's a longer time during which an antiviral might work. Is there um, possible for a home test to uh, test people out when, uh, without them calling yeah. a doctor? Well, testing is so important, and we're quite a way off having a home test. At the moment, there's actually limited capacity in most countries for actually doing um, a test, which is a, a test based on polymerase chain reaction. It's a genetic test, which has to be, you know, you amplify the um, DNA, which has come from the RNA in a very special lab. It, you know, these tests can take at a minimum 12 hours once they're perfected. But at the moment, many labs are not able to report in under 48 hours. And that's a very long interval um, between the test sample being taken and getting the result back. You know, if we had an instant test, that would be great. It would really help in controlling this sort of outbreak. So, you know, one number that I haven't seen around, like you refer to the fact that each infected person will probably on average infect two to three more people. And, you know, roughly, we, we don't know for sure, but that roughly. seems like the number. Yeah. Yeah. And hmm. But every person probably exposes the virus to maybe thousands of people. So we don't really know. What what would you say is the ratio of if 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 someone's infected? What's the ratio of how many people then get exposed to the virus from that person as opposed to how many people actually then get the virus mm. from that person? Mm. We don't. We really don't know. I mean, from this example in the skiing chalet. It looks like one person who came back from a, a meeting in Singapore was able to infect virtually everyone in the chalet. Um, but that was, you know, living together for a period of a few days. So at the moment, there's reports coming out of Chinese hospitals that in in um, healthcare facilities where they don't have enough protective equipment, that um, many of the medical staff um, have become infected already and are suffering from symptoms of variable severity. And of course, there's this, this doctor, the ophthalmologist, who just a few days ago um, very sadly died of it. And he was a man in his 30s with no, no risk factors. About half the people with serious disease have no known risk factors for serious disease. And so yet, if, yeah. you, if you're in the hospital and your lungs are filling up with liquid, can't they just sort of, um, you know, do some sort of stent into the lungs and suck the liquid out mm -hmm. to keep you alive? So the main, the main treatment is oxygen. So oxygen is often enough to restore the blood oxygen levels in people with, you know, severe but not very severe disease. If it goes beyond that, then you may need a pressure mask to mechanically actually um, inflate the lungs and 
put oxygen into the blood that way. If that doesn't work, you may have to put a tube down into the trachea and then do tracheal tube and actually do mechanical ventilation using a using a, a formal ventilator, just like you would in the operating theater. So this young doctor who died, he was yeah. in the hospital, he was healthy, yeah. uh, but these techniques did not work for him? So yeah, his disease progressed through that severity and he actually went on to a sort of lung bypass machine called ECMO, um, where they were oxygenating his blood externally through, a, through an artificial lung. So pretty sophisticated stuff. There aren't many ECMO centers um, around where they can do that level of sophistication. If, if the ventilator treatment still doesn't get enough oxygen in, then ECMO is the final, is the final op option that you go to. And despite that, he, he died. But some of the patients with a very severe end-stage disease are getting problems with their kidneys, problems with the heart, you know, so it, it seems to have the ability to actually cause quite a lot of organ damage outside the lungs as well in, in those very severely sick people. So the worst case scenario here is not that far from a realistic scenario. So some large percentage of the globe could get it. There's some fatality rate higher than 2%, probably less than 10%, which leads to in a nor 10 yeah, no, we, we don't we don't deaths. think no we don't think the the actual case fatality rate is likely to be anything like 10%, but 2% is a is a reasonable guess at the moment okay. of all the of all the cases, yeah. But we still don't know much about the mild cases. Those have been much less reported, much less studied. We know much more about those who've ended up in hospital. I see. So so we actually don't know it could be less than two percent also. It's just that the ones who die are relatively weak and so they're dying faster. And so we know could about be. them. Yeah. Yeah. So the hospital fatality rate might be something, you know, we're we're thinking maybe fifteen percent. So, so those who have disease severe enough to get into hospital. And I must say that I've personally lived through many pretty scary outbreaks and none of them have turned out to be as bad as we feared. I like, think like was an example? Well, SARS, you know, that really looked very scary indeed. I think the H1N1 pandemic flu, 2009, 2010, we were really quite concerned in the early days because we were seeing a lot of people needing hospital treatment, a lot of people needing to go on the ventilators. And then it turned out that actually it was pretty mild. It was sort of milder than most, most ordinary um, seasonal flu. What could and, change in the data that makes us feel this is just as mild? I think what would cause a great sigh of relief would be if we could find out that actually it's pretty widespread and most people don't have any symptoms at all and they're fine. That would be very reassuring. I see. So that, that basically the, the fatality rate is incredibly lower than we initially thought just because so many people have it without showing symptoms or just a yeah, cough or whatever. That, that, would, that would be great. I mean, I must say the reports coming out of China of, the, of these hospital facilities full of people with severe disease is extremely worrying. But, you know, I just, that we're waiting for some, some good news of that sort. And I must say that the good news that came out at the end of 2009, that actually there were a lot of people who had um, 
developed antibodies to pandemic flu strain um, had had no symptoms at all. And that suddenly changed the whole scenario and we were greatly re- relieved. How can we how can we test that now? Like should just people start randomly getting tested for this and seeing if they have it? No, I mean the the tests are very much under development. So we de- we still haven't got enough data about how many people get infected and just have mild disease on those symptoms. And that's and so, that's something we're waiting to hear. So and this is just this is just getting into the speculative area now. It just I'm just curious. Well, well first off if you or your family got exposed or you thought you were infected, what would you personally do? And what would you have your family do? I, I think we would try not to infect anyone else. I think we would self-quarantine at home and only seek, seek advice by telephone and only go to hospital, actually, if we were advised that, uh, that we should do that because we were um, more severely affected. I think self-quarantine at home is at the moment what we're planning and expecting to have to do. And what would you, uh, what would you take uh, in terms of homemade cures? Yeah, so symptomatic relief with ibuprofen or acetaminophen, um, keep up the fluid intake. Um, yeah, there's nothing, nothing very specific that you can do about this. And and again, this this is the part. This will and we'll start to close with this. this is total speculation, but given the lockdowns that are happening city by city all over China, and and some cities much more severely than others. Like from what I understand, Shanghai, there's not much of a lockdown, but Chengdu, there's a total lockdown, or Nanjing, I think is the name of the city, is a total lockdown, and they're all kind of equal, almost equally far from uh, Wuhan. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I'm just, um, I don't know where I was quite going with that, but okay. Just in terms of the effect this will have on the world economy, because basically yeah. the world's factories, the, the pulse of world manufacturing for better or for worse is in China. Some parts of China seem locked down. Some aren't for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's speculation here on the effect on the economy? Final really important point to make is that, you know, you can you can plan the introduction of all of these measures to try to limit spread, but alongside that, you need to plan what happens later. You know, how do you then step down those arrangements when it no longer appears necessary or it appears futile to try to uh, limit spread? You know, because as you say, you know, there is a limit to to which we can actually just shut down. All travel, shut down our manufacturing capacity, shut down trade, and yet um, survive. You know, there, there has to be a decision at some stage as to whether these precautions have worked or haven't worked. And then we need to have a plan for how to start to lift restrictions and get back to, to normal life. Well, uh, Dr. Peter Openshaw, Hey, thanks for responding so quickly to my request to come on the podcast because I was trying to figure out just what's conspiracy, what's not conspiracy, what's what's the real, what are the real numbers or what numbers we should be looking for. And I think an important number uh, or an important possibility you brought up was that the amount of people who have this could be far greater than we know. We just know for the, which is oddly a good thing. Because then the, it changes the percentages considerably in terms of how worried we should be about 
70 million deaths versus flu level deaths. Uh, uh, and then, you know, and again, I don't think the worst case scenario does seem pretty bad and still seems somewhat more possible than not. But at least, you know, we're st it's, it's good to know which numbers to look for, what data to look for. And it's good to know what's what's realistic and what's not. Mm -hmm. OK, I mean, I think the, there's no point in getting panicked over this, but I do think we need to be concerned. And and uh, in a few weeks, when we start to get some some more data and some more numbers, can I give you a call and you could come on again and we could just summarize what what's been going on? Sure. And I hope by then we'll feel reassured and things will be going in the right direction. I hope so, too, because I couldn't sleep last night thinking about this. <laughs> so we all have families and, and we want them to be well. And uh, uh, well, OK, Dr. Peter Openshaw, uh, immunologist and many other things. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. This is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. Pleasure to talk to you, James. So I don't usually do an outro, but I think it is very important. And I, I spoke about this with Dr. Openshaw after the interview. Uh, he did want to really stress, and it was very important to stress, that we know very little about the ratios that were discussed. You know, there's numbers being thrown out by the WH, the World Health Organization. There's numbers being given by China. All we know really are the number of people who have been so uh, infected or the disease was infect, in, affecting them so much that they had to go to the hospital. We don't know uh, actually how many people have been exposed and how many people have been infected. It could be the case that there, there's, we, it could be the case that as a species, even we've, we've already developed antibodies for all we know, millions of people have been infected and in which case a very, very tiny percentage have died. And he mentioned, uh, uh, you know, he referred to the past couple of instances with like SARS or with H1N1 uh, flu that everybody was much more worried in the first few weeks and months because of those initial ratios that they were hearing compared to what ended up happening, which was that large numbers of the population turned out to be infected once there was an actual test for this infection uh, for for that, those particular infections, just like there's no test yet, but there will be, it will, it could turn out, it could be very likely that large numbers of people have been infected and that the actual fatality rate is very, very small and that uh, the virus was much more containable than we had initially thought or that people were speculating in, in mass media and that really at this point, there is no cause for panic at all. And it's just you know, a kind of work in progress, but he will come back on and, and update us and give us more summaries. But if you think this was useful, please share it with people. I think there was a lot of useful advice in there and uh, subscribe to the James Altucher show. I'm always going to do podcasts like this when there's this kind of fear in the world. And thanks for listening. If you have any questions, you can tweet them out to me and I will send them to uh, Dr. Openshaw, and also could possibly ask him in on the next time he's back on the podcast. Thanks for listening. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. 
the most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.